Uh, my name is Tony, as Steve said. I'm one of the pastors here, serve as the Westside Venue Director. Uh, thanks that you, just thank you for joining us. Uh, I hope you all had just a great Christmas yesterday. Uh, it's hard to imagine that we are back in church after Christmas Eve. If you were here for Christmas Eve, we had a great time uh, celebrating Jesus, singing Christmas songs, and just, it was just a very exultant time together. I uh, hope Christmas was good for you. You know, for my family and me, it was, it was, it was restful and peaceful. We were up way too early. Anyone else? A few of us, maybe. Uh, we've got young kids, so we are expecting that pretty much every day. Um, but we got to spend time with family, have a great meal together, open presents. It was just a time where we got to slow down and, and be grateful for Jesus. So I hope uh, that was true for you too. Uh, today, we're jumping back into our series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we started this series about a month ago, and we we're just going line by line uh, through this creed that really just boils down the basic convictions we have as followers of Jesus. And something that we're doing in this series every week is we are encouraging everyone to stand and recite the Apostles' Creed together. So I'd like to invite you to stand if you're able to, and we're going to say the Apostles' Creed together, uh, and then we're going to sit back down. So feel free to uh, repeat this along with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can have a seat. So this morning, uh, we have come to the part of the Apostles' Creed uh, that really centers on the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, as Christians, Jesus is really at the core, the center of our faith, right? Our belief centers on who he is. And what he has done for us. In the middle of the Apostles' Creed, uh, we read five things uh, that Jesus, that happened in Jesus' life that he went through for us. It says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, he died and was buried, and he descended to the dead. Now we're going to do our best in the next 30 or so minutes to cover all of that. So um, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 23. Uh, we're going to be there most of the time. We're going to jump around a little bit, but we're going to be in a lot of text in Luke 23. Uh, but really, as we heard last week in Adam's sermon, if you haven't heard Adam's sermon, it's just fantastic what he went through in the Apostles' Creed. It's just so, so good. Um, he talked about Jesus being uh, born of the Virgin Mary. And we talked about this a couple days ago on Christmas Eve, right? This is what we celebrate. Jesus coming into the world as a baby boy. It was revealed through scripture and through prophecy that a savior would come and that the savior would rescue his people from their sins. And that's what we celebrate on Christmas. And while we know that Jesus had a human experience, there's not much in the Bible about his childhood or his teenage years. There's a lot about his birth and there's a lot about the end of his life. The, the, really the last few years, his public ministry, but we actually don't have much in the Bible about him as a kid. We have one story, and it's actually kind of traumatic. 
Uh, If you're familiar with the Bible, you know this story. Jesus went to a Passover festival with his parents, and his parents forgot him there. And so, and it wasn't just for hours. It wasn't like they left and, oh, we forgot Jesus. Like, who are we? Like, they forgot him for days. They left Jesus there. If you're a parent in here and you've ever forgotten your child somewhere, you're in good company. The parents of Jesus <laughs> left him at a festival for multiple days. And it's so crazy. Jesus is just hanging out in the temple. He's like, I was in my dad's house. You know, like, it's just this crazy experience that happens. But that's really all we have about Jesus as a kid. But then right after that verse, it says that Jesus grew up. He grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. He grew in favor with God and with men. So we know that Jesus had a human experience. But the Gospels really focus on Jesus' life as an adult. You kind of fast forwards into the last three years of Jesus' life. This was his public ministry. This is where Jesus called disciples. He called followers to learn from him, right? He taught publicly. He performed miracles. He healed people. And he did all of those things as this promised rescuer. All throughout the Old Testament scriptures, God had promised to send someone, and that someone was Jesus. You know, as Jesus was traveling around and doing all these things, there was a buzz about him. You weren't really in the middle when it came to Jesus. You were either for him or against him, (laughs) because he was turning heads everywhere he went. People were noticing the things that Jesus was doing, and they were asking the question, okay, is this the one? Is he the king that is going to come and set up his kingdom and overthrow Rome? So many of the Jewish people were so focused on being out of the tyranny of Rome because because Judea was occupied in Rome during the time of Jesus. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, days before his crucifixion, people were chanting, Hosanna. They were saying, the king is here. Finally, we're going to be free. They were expecting this coronation, right, where you put a crown on a king and he, he becomes the, the king and the throne and, and he's ruling there. But that's not what happened when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Everyone expected a king, a coronation. But instead, Jesus went through humiliation. Over the next few hours, the next day, Jesus suffered And that's what this part of the Apostles' Creed gets at. And that's where we're going to be this morning. It says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, he was the Roman governor over Judea from AD 26 to 36. So what he did was he really oversaw the Roman presence in Judea. He made sure that all the soldiers were doing their thing and all the the Jewish people were falling in line under Roman rule. That was his job. And one night... The Jewish leaders were led to Jesus by Judas. He was the one disciple who betrayed Jesus. And then they brought Jesus before Pontius Pilate. So we're going to be in Luke 23 again this morning. We're going to read a lot of text because we're going to go through everything that happened to Jesus. But we're going to start in Luke 23, starting in verse 1. It says this, Then their whole assembly rose up, these are the people that captured Jesus, and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee where he started even to hear. And then we just jump to verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, 
You've brought me this man as one who misleads the people. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I've found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither is Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll have him whipped and then release him. Then they all cried out together, take this man away. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, crucify. Crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What has this man done wrong? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder, but he handed Jesus over to their will. Okay, so the Apostles' Creed tells us that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And and here in these verses, we really see that all get played out. This is a tragedy. This is a tragic thing that happens. Like, but, but something to know, none of this was a surprise to Jesus, right? He knew. He, he knew what he had come to do. He accepted it. He had prepared himself for the suffering. But we see a lot about Pilate here in this interaction that makes us pause. Like, I really wonder what was going on in Pilate's heart during all of this. Do you see what some of the things he said? I find no grounds for charging this man. Clearly, he's done nothing to deserve death. He said that twice. And then he says, why? What has he done wrong? You know, when we see Pilate here in the text, he's a man conflicted, isn't he? After interrogation, after engaging with the Jewish leaders, after interacting with this mob, he's still not convinced that Jesus should even be there. He's asking the question, what is happening He's in a terrible position, right? Does he incite a riot with these Jewish people that he's charged to keep in line by freeing Jesus, sending him back? Or does he do what they want? Does he go against his conscience? Does he condemn an innocent man to death? We see him do that. We see him give Jesus over to the Jewish leaders and do what they wanted. Verse 24 says that. It says he granted their demand. This began the terrible ordeal where Jesus began to experience traumatic physical suffering. Now the Romans back then were known for a lot of things. uh, And one was their ability to inflict pain and suffering on people. It came through mockery. came through intense physical pain. It came through shame. No, they attempted to take away a person's dignity, strip them of their personhood by utterly just breaking them down. And we see Jesus go through this with it ultimately ending on a cross. This is Luke 23, starting in verse 26. I'm gonna read about 30 verses here because I want us to to have the picture, okay? As I'm reading this, you can feel free to follow along. If it helps you even to close your eyes and picture it, like I, I want us, we can't move past this text without spending time here and really letting it sit with us as to the depths Jesus went for us. 
This is Luke 23, starting in verse 26. As they led Jesus away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. This was some, some guy that they said, hey, you need to come and help Jesus carry this cross. Let's jump to verse 32. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and they cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself. If this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, Jesus breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, this man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, they went home striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. This event, these 30 or so verses here, this is what Jesus' life was leading towards. His ministry, his teaching, his miracles, his time with the disciples, it was all leading up to this moment in history where he'd be crucified, where he would die, where he'd be buried. But as we see that scene unfold in the scriptures, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's hard hearing that and reading that. The, like just what Jesus went through. But we must ask the question, why? Why did that have to happen? Why does our faith hinge on that? Because it does. Without this, we don't have Christianity. Why is the crucifixion 
so important? Could there have been some other way God could have done this, accomplished his mission of saving people? Well, we see the cross is really at the center of God's plan coming to fruition. It's the apex, the point in which the problem of sin is accomplished once and for all. How we talk about sin here at Riverview, it's any time we fail to reflect God's image. We do that in our nature. We do that in our attitude. We do it in our actions. But it actually, sin hasn't just affected humanity. It's affected creation. It's infected everything. And we see this start all back in Genesis 3. We see how sin entered the world. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created a perfect world. (laughs) And he created Adam and he created Eve. But when they disobeyed God, when they went against the one thing he had asked them not to do, that's when we see sin infect everything, infect them and infect creation. We heard this described in Adam's sermon in Romans chapter 5 last week. Right, this is Romans 5, verse 17 and 18, where it says this. It says, if by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's talking about Adam, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass, one act of disobedience, there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act, a crucifixion, a death for sin, there is justification leading to life for everyone. Do you see it? Sin entered the world through a man, through Adam, one act of disobedience. And because that was true, it needed to be taken away by a man one better than Adam. Because through our first father, Adam, we became sinners. But through Christ, we're made righteous. At the cross, some things come into focus. You know when you're looking through binoculars and you're kind of adjusting the lenses and you can finally see something clearly? That's what the cross does for us. It just makes some things very clear in our lives. The first thing we see very clearly at the cross is we see the severity of sin. There's no greater evil. There's no greater enemy in our world than sin. We see the effects of it everywhere. It's like a massive boulder dropped in a lake and then it just ripples out and you see it. You see it in sickness, in death. You see it in abuse, hardship, natural disasters, broken relationships. That is all sin. It's all from sin. But we see in 2 Corinthians 5 that at the cross, Jesus, the perfect man who knew no sin, became sin for us. We see the depth and the severity of sin on the cross. The second thing the cross shows us very clearly is the holiness of God. Now to be holy, that what that word means, it just means to be set apart for a purpose. Nothing compares to God. He's perfect. In his character, he's pure, he's righteous and good. Isaiah 40 verse 13 really helps us understand this. It says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Who has given him counsel? Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Just that picture, it's, it's funny, isn't it? To think of God thinking, okay guys, what do we do here? 
like getting people around him, like brainstorming. God doesn't need a team. <laughs> He's perfect. He's all-knowing. Nothing compares. He doesn't need to consult people. He's so far in his goodness and majesty. Nothing compares to him. And because sin is such an enemy to the world that he made, to the people that he created, it would be unloving for him to just turn away from that and not deal with sin. He wouldn't be good if he didn't deal with sin. And that's what he did in the cross. The cross shows us the severity of sin, the holiness of God, and finally, it shows us the willingness of Jesus. Jesus wasn't forced to go to the cross. He did it willingly, in willing submission and obedience to his heavenly Father. He knew the cost, but he also knew what would come of it, what would come of enduring it and bearing the shame. Forgiveness for God's people. Hebrews chapter 9 Verse 22 makes this really clear. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sins. In the cross, we see God's perfect plan come to fruition. That the power of sin and Satan are dealt with. And it happened in the crucifixion. Jesus bearing the wrath of God for us. After Jesus died, the Apostles' Creed tells us that Jesus descended to the dead. You know, of all the lines in the Apostles' Creed, this one is the most debated, I think. It's the question, really, of where Jesus went after he died and before he resurrected from the dead. The resurrection is next week. We're going to get to that. But what does this mean, that Jesus descended to the dead? Some theologians and commentators go as far as saying, this shouldn't be in the Apostles' Creed. They don't think that it happened. And other ones are like, this is absolutely should be there. This, this is what happened. <laughs> so what do we do with that? Well, this part of the Apostles' Creed, it's based on a few scriptures. There's not a lot of text on this. One of them we already read. I don't know if you caught it. But when Jesus is on the cross and there's two criminals next to him, one of them's mocking him, but the other says, remember me, Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you know what Jesus says to that guy? Today, you will be with me in paradise. So that's one verse that kind of gets into this. There's another one in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. It says this, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Okay, this is the crucifixion, right? This is his death for sin. He was put to death in the flesh, his body, but made alive by the Spirit. So here's, here's where it gets tricky in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Okay, what does that mean, <laughs> right? So there's a fascination that I think we as human beings have with the afterlife. There's a lot of Greek mythology. There's a lot of stories. There's a lot of movies and songs. My wife and I, we actually just went to a, a musical at the Wharton Center uh, with some friends called Hades Town. I don't know if any of you saw this, um, but it's this, this musical. It's a Greek, it's a retelling of a Greek tragedy about this descent into the afterlife. But these verses here, they peel back the curtain a little bit as to what Jesus, where he went and what he did. First Peter 3 says, he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. What is that? Where is this prison? Who are these spirits? 
Well, I don't know about you. I'm a visual learner. I often need to see things in order to make sense of them. And so Pastor Justin Detmers, he's a Rio Town venue director. He made a diagram uh, a few years ago when he taught about this. And it's actually this. So we're going to go through this for a minute. But this explains where people would go in the time of Jesus' death or before that, when they died. So, okay, first, if you are in the spirit when you died, if you believed, you would go to paradise. But if you were not a believer when you died, you would go to Gehenna or Tartarus here. So one thing to know about this, there's a, there's a great gulf that separates us. This. this is a parable too in the book of Luke where you see Jesus telling the story. But this was true when Jesus had died. This isn't true for believers currently. This is a key thing to understand because Jesus has ascended into heaven, right? Where Jesus is right now, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. So in the book of Philippians, we know that if you are in Christ today, if you die, you go to be with Christ in heaven. But for those who don't believe, they still await judgment in Gehenna, okay? So this kind of helps us understand a little bit what's going on here. But the question still remains, right? Where did Jesus go? Did he go to paradise? Did he go to Gehenna? Some people think that he went to paradise from what he told the criminal. Today you'll be with me in paradise. But others think 1 Peter 3. Maybe he went to Gehenna and proclaimed victory over the disobedient spirits. We could do sermons on this. We're not going to because <laughs> we just, we don't know, right? We, scripture can justify both. But we do know some things. Regardless of where Jesus went when he descended to the dead, we know a few things from other scriptures that are true here. The first Jesus did descend to the dead. Jesus died. Some people think this was some elaborate trick that the disciples played. That Jesus didn't really die, that they like nursed him back to health. And no, there's no way someone can come back from the dead. That's not true. Jesus died. They pierced him and blood and water came out. That was a sign that someone had died. So the first thing we can know, Jesus literally and physically died. Second thing, Wherever Jesus went, we know Jesus did not continue to suffer. Some commentators and theologians think that wherever Jesus descended to, he continued to suffer, which is wrong. Because on the cross, do you remember what Jesus said? He, he committed his spirit, but he also said, it is finished. He said, to telestai. That, that, that's this idea that the debt has been paid. It is finished. The third thing we can know, though, from wherever Jesus went, wherever he went, he did not offer a second chance to believe. Some of us may want to think that wherever Jesus went, he went and gave these people that didn't, have, that didn't believe in him an opportunity to believe again. That's not what happened. We see over and over in the scriptures that we have one life, one opportunity to trust Christ. And that's why we need to do it today. We must turn to him in faith before our earthly lives end. Jesus descended to the dead after he suffered and paid for sin. This is really the core message of the gospel that we trust in as Christians. It centers around this act, this event, this crucifixion of Jesus. And it's paradoxical. I mean, some people that aren't Christians, they, they don't get it. And it's hard to get. Why does your faith center on just such a tragic and evil thing? And it's, it's kind of hard to believe, right? How can something so tragic and violent be so beautiful 
and its impact. But this is what we see over and over again in the New Testament. This was the message that was proclaimed. It wasn't be better. (laughs) It wasn't try harder. It was you need a savior. This is what Jesus accomplished for us. It's central to our ability to know God and be known by him. The gospel just means good news. (laughs) So what we need to do, we really need to understand why it's good news. How is this part of the Apostles' Creed, a part that's just hard to listen to and hard to hear, how is that good for us? Not just eternally, but today. There's a lot of ways, more ways than I have time to share. (laughs) But there's a few that I think that I've been resting in, and I just hope that we can as a church today. The suffering of Jesus is good news, first, because it tells us that God understands suffering. There was a prophecy about Jesus hundreds of years before uh, he came to the earth. It's Isaiah 53. It's the prophecy of the suffering servant. And what Isaiah did, it was this prophecy. It was history written in advance. And there was some things that Isaiah had prophesied that this is what the Savior would be like. And look at what it says. It says he was going to be despised, rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was going to be like someone that people turned away from. People weren't going to value him. He would be oppressed and he'd be afflicted. Suffering, it's part of our human experience. Regardless of what you believe in here today, whether you're in Christ or whether you're not sure and whether you just adamantly disagree with who God is, you're going to suffer. Our faith doesn't protect us from earthly suffering. And with suffering often comes shame and loneliness and fear You know, oftentimes when we're suffering more than anything, we want it to end. We would do anything to feel better, and we try to make ourselves feel better. But I think a lot of times in our suffering, like even more than wanting it to end, we we want to be understood. We want someone to know what it's like to sit with us. We want to be told it's okay to grieve and to mourn and be frustrated. You know, oftentimes in our suffering, I think what we really need is we need understanding. And we have that in Jesus. You know, I know some of you may be suffering today. In this season, it's maybe even harder because you see a lot of people having joyful experiences and you see people just experiencing peace and rest. And for you, it's not. You're suffering. If that's you, I just encourage you, go to Jesus He was a man oppressed, afflicted, devalued, despised, rejected. Jesus knows suffering more deeply than any of us ever will. And I'm not saying that to put down whatever you're going through. I'm, I'm trying to help us all see that Jesus went through incredible suffering. Because it was in his crucifixion that we see that. In his death. And in an odd way that encourages us. Because we worship a God who gets it. He understands suffering. This is also good news, the crucifixion, because it makes clear to us two aspects of God's character that seem like opposites. In the crucifixion, we see that God is both perfectly loving and perfectly just. Now, we like the idea that God is one or one of those, but he can't be both, right? We love the God who who forgives sin and who offers forgiveness, 
And then we also, for some people, love the God of justice, don't we? The one who cannot be in the presence of sin, who exacts perfect justice. We tend to lean towards this one for ourselves and that one for others. (laughs) We love a God who forgives us, but that guy, judgment. This is how we are. We see ourselves that way. But the good news, God is both perfectly. He's perfectly loving and perfectly just. And the crucifixion is where we see it. I think Al Mohler put it really well when he wrote this. He said, The atoning work on the cross reveals the fullness of God's nature and character. In the crucifixion, humanity observes the depth of God's hatred towards sin. In Christ's death, God's people view the tragic consequences of our rebellion. In the cross, God's people also learn the depth of God's love. He does not leave his people in their sin, damned to an eternity in hell. He comes to rescue them from their grip of Satan by delivering his own son. In the cross, God acted out of his perfect nature and character. Thus, God revealed in Jesus' sacrifice the overwhelming intersection of his divine love and justice. In the crucifixion, we see, I love that, the divine intersection. That at the same time, God is both perfectly loving and perfectly just. We can't grasp this truth. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's too hard for us. They seem like opposites. Because we often think of the most loving thing to do is to forgive, let wrongs go. Okay, I know you did that, but I'm going to let it go. But then over here, we think of justice as not the opposite, right? Not letting sin go. Having righteous judgment, not overlooking the offense, but the crucifixion reveals both. Because of God's justice, a sacrifice is required to pay for sin. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. But also because of God's love, he provided the sacrifice himself through a willing Savior who would come to the world. Both of these things are good news. It's good news for us today that God is just, that he will judge sin because evil and sinful things happen in this world. Evil and sinful things may have happened to you. You may have been sinned against. The suffering that you're experiencing today, that may be because someone chose to commit sinful acts against you. And if that's your story, I'm so sorry that's happened to you. God knows your brokenness. He knows your hurt. And in his justice, he will judge sin perfectly. It's also good news that God is loving, that he offers us forgiveness. Any one of us in this room who are followers of Jesus, we know And we acknowledge that it was our sin and our rebellion that Jesus went to the cross for. Not our neighbors, not our coworkers, not those in our family, ours. Romans 5, 6 tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is good news for us today because we all still struggle with sin. Even when we believe, even when we say yes to Jesus, That sin nature is still part of us. And it's at war with the spirit in us. 
We still pursue the things that Christ set us free from, that song that we sing, right? We wander, we're prone to leave the God we love. But God is a perfect heavenly father. And I often think of God being described like a father, that can trigger a lot of different thoughts. If we didn't have a good father, like that's hard for us to see God that way. Because we may think of God as the dad with his arms crossed, who's heaping condemnation on his kids for their wrongs, for their waywardness. But that's not the God of justice and the God of love. The God we worship is a God with arms open, a heavenly father who just wants us to come home. It's all he wants. God is both perfectly loving and perfectly just. But the last thing we see in the crucifixion is how much he values you. The depth of God's love he has for the ones he's created. This was the plan according to the scripture. It was that God would rescue his people from their sins. This is the grand story of the entire Bible. If you want to know what the Bible is about, (laughs) Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, this is it. It's a rescue story. It's a story of a hero. And it's Jesus. And while Jesus is the hero of that story, it's really important that we remember something. Jesus was not a victim. He wasn't. Instead of a victim, you know what Jesus was? He was a victor. He went to the cross in willing submission to his heavenly father. And it was a struggle. The night before it happened, we see Jesus in the garden and he is sweating blood. He is anxious. He says, God, if there's another way this could happen, please have this cup pass from me. But then he says, not my will, but yours be done. He trusted God. We see Jesus talking about himself in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that for the joy that lay before Jesus, he endured the cross. Al Mohler again says this, the Bible does not speak of a father abandoning a child to the cross. It describes rather a son who willingly gave up his life for his people. He laid down his life for the sheep. He set his face toward the cross, enduring its shame, obeyed the will of his father and accomplished salvation for all God's people. This is how loved we are. This is how valued we are, how cherished we are, that we have a Savior willing to suffer for us. That we have a God who is so majestic and so holy and perfect that sin cannot be in his presence. But in the Son, he became sin. We have a God who loves us so deeply that he paid the ultimate price in bringing us back to himself. There's no greater news There's no greater story than this, and there never will be. Do you ever wonder why the best stories are ones of rescue, ones of a hero, one one where a hero pays the ultimate price to rescue who they came for? Do you know why those are so powerful? They're echoes. They're not new stories. It's the story. It's our story. The story that God has written in our hearts. That's why we love them. That the God of the universe came near and did what we couldn't. He made a way back for us. 
wherever you are today, whatever, wherever you are with, with Jesus, <laughs> my ultimate hope, it's that you believe this. That's all I want. You know, I know oftentimes we can come to church on Sundays and, and want to be told in a sermon, go do this thing. Here's some things to go be a better Christian this week. I'm not going to do that. I don't have a list for you. <laughs> the only thing I want for you today, for you this week, is I want you to love Jesus more. I want you to treasure him more deeply. I want you to believe, to look at what he did and wonder at the love God has for you. Whether you need to believe that for the first time or for the millionth time, believe in Jesus and let him provide rest for your soul. That Jesus, a man acquainted with suffering, a willing savior, he did what you couldn't. He did what you can't, that you could never do. Believe in him and experience the fullness of joy and peace that's offered to you for this life today, but also for life eternally. Let's pray. God, I do, I just can't believe what you did. God, I remember when I first heard about Jesus. I remember where I was. I remember being a teenager, searching for truth, wondering what, who you were, what my life was about, not knowing anything. But then hearing about Jesus, having the weight lifted of feeling like I had to be good enough. God, it was so freeing to hear that I wasn't and I can't be and I can never be. And that's why Jesus came, to be good enough, to be perfect, to take my sin and to deal with it once and for all. God, as we rest and we hear the story of the crucifixion, the death, the burial of Jesus, I pray that you help us not think about other people who may need that. <laughs> but God, I pray that you help us today realize that we need that. That you came to save us. That you loved us enough while we were still helpless. You died for us. Thank you for sending us a savior who was born, who lived, who died, and who resurrected from the dead for us. We treasure him today. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.